Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, I once was invited and had dinner at Club 33. Do you know what that is, Club 33? Yeah. Had I known at the time and kind of was familiar with all things Disney, I would have recognized this little exclusive club in New Orleans Square. I would have recognized what a big deal it was. I would have certainly felt more privileged and more honored, and I would have certainly talked about it more, but I didn't realize it at the time. I had to later go back and look at where, to me, I was just a dinner. I was going to this dinner, and they told me where to go, and I couldn't park close to it. It was kind of a hassle to get there. And later I read that to be a part of this club in Disney... It's going to be twenty-five grand just to register, and it's going to be twelve grand a year. And and I thought, wow, had I known that, you know, I certainly would have taken more selfies inside or something. It just to, to me was, I you know, just a just dinner, and the dinner was fine. I didn't fully appreciate it. But you know, think about exclusive clubs in Anaheim. You can certainly go outside of Anaheim and find much more exclusive clubs. There's a core club in Midtown Manhattan. Going to cost you fifty grand just to register, and going to cost you seventeen grand a year. Or you want to be a member at Trump National, for instance, his country club. You're going to pay close to two hundred thousand dollars just to get in, and that's not the worst. I mean, the most exclusive country club, for instance, if you want to be a part of, in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, the National Country Club, that's going to cost you a half a million dollars just to be a part of the club. Well, for all the exclusive clubs in the world, there is a much more exclusive club than that. And you wouldn't know it by looking at the people. As a matter of fact, they're always inviting people to join. And that's not usually how it is with these exclusive clubs. Usually they're pretty snobbish and standoffish. They don't want you to join. But this one, they're always wanting you to be a part of it. They welcome people in all the time. And yet to be a part of this club, the initiation fee is astronomical. Literally. I mean, it's it's out of this world. Of course, I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible says to get in this club, to get taken out of your old club and to be set into this club, this society, this organization. It can't be bought with things like silver and gold. It has to be a purchase price as it's put by Peter of the precious blood of Christ himself. It's an exclusive club that goes back to the first century. It was established by God. It's called the Church of God. It's called the Assembly of the Firstborn. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. And while you may not think of it as an exclusive club because you look at it with all of its warts and wrinkles and say, well, yeah, a few things I would improve about my little local outpost of the Church of Christ, you better stop and recognize, and we don't do it enough, how valued we ought to feel how privileged we ought to be, how much we ought to naturally want to talk about the fact that we are a part of a 2,000-year-old organization that God himself established and said, listen, you can come and visit it, but if you really want to be a part of this, if you're going to be a member of this thing called the church, it's something that has cost Christ his life 
And it's something that you ought to see not as a hassle, not just as a program, not just as more stuff to do on a Tuesday night with all the stuff that they're asking me to be involved in. You ought to see it as the greatest privilege of all. And I want to spend five weeks talking about this by looking at Acts chapter 2 and having us elevate our view of the church. There's no better way for us to do that than to look at how it started. And this morning, briefly, I just want to look at the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 as God starts his church. He launches it with a miracle. And you say, well, the Bible's full of miracles. No, it's not. I hope you've been with us on Thursday nights. We've thought through the supernatural. The supernatural was everywhere. Then the world would be chaotic. Of course, the world's not chaotic. God functions in this world as he set this thing up to function according to a set of rules, the natural order of things. Now, every now and then, he intervenes in time and space and disrupts the natural order of things. But really, in my count, from Genesis to Revelation, you can only found about, about 80 to 90 examples of him doing that. Really, less than 100. Where God does something obviously, outstandingly supernatural. And God said, I'm going to launch a new thing called the church. I'm going to start this organization Something that he said while he was still here before he did it. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It'll be like a a seed. Like a little tiny mustard seed. And it's going to grow. And it's going to be huge. And the branches are going to stretch out. And you're going to see birds from all over the place come and find their nesting in that huge tree. That's what it's going to be like. God's going to grow his church. And in Acts chapter 2, it started, and I want you to turn there as we look through this passage, and I want you to see what the Bible has to say about the launch of this thing that you, if you're a Christian, are a part of here today. And you need to be faithful to be a part of this. You need to come through the doors when the doors are open. You need to be part of the programs when they're announced from the platform, when you see them in the bulletin. This is a privileged thing to be a part of, and you ought to maximize your involvement in it because it is the most privileged and elite thing you could ever be a part of. If you're not a Christian, you can visit it, you can check it out, you can kind of interact in and among us, but you're not really a part of the church until you find Christ as your Lord and Savior. But look at how this whole thing started. Jesus had talked so much about it. In this two-volume history that Luke had put forth in chapter 24, he spoke of this day, it's coming, you need to wait in Jerusalem. He says it then in chapter 1, you need to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, it's coming. And now it's going to happen. Take your Bibles and look at the first 13 verses. I'm going to read them for you from the English Standard Version as it begins this way. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, that was one of the four major feasts of Israel. It was what's called a pilgrimage feast where you were required, if you were a devout Jew, no matter where you were from, you could be a proselyte from who knows where, anywhere. If you've submitted yourself to the one true God of the universe... If you are going to understand that God has revealed himself in the law of Moses, in the prophets of the Old Testament, you want to be right with the creator that made you, then you need to be submitted to his law, and his law in the Old Testament required that you come to Jerusalem for these festival feasts. And this one, Pentecost, is called Pentecost because the word Pentecost comes from the word 50, and 50 was the number of days between the Passover And this thing now that they're celebrating 50 days later called Pentecost, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Harvest, it was a time for them to celebrate God's provision. And so people were coming from all over the ancient world 
to do their duty, which was to be there in Jerusalem for the very special things that would happen when no one did regular work. And they had these special worship services and they brought special sacrifices. And that day arrived, Pentecost. And these 120, they, look back in chapter 1, it was these 120, not just the 11 plus 1. Now we have the 12 completed again in their mind and we have 120 people in this upper room. They were together in one place and then here's the miraculous part. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and that's important for you to recognize It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. You've heard a mighty rushing wind. I'm assuming you've been in a place where you've heard the wind, you know, whipping through the trees and you've heard the sound that it makes. And I mean, you need a great set of subwoofers and a great set of tweeters to kind of reproduce that sound. If it's not there happening in front of you, then that's a big, big deal. And it was a loud rushing wind that they heard, but it wasn't wind. It was something like a wind. And that was a sound that they heard and it came from God and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then it says, which is certainly going to be a play on words here, the description of something visible, verse 3. And divided tongues, in other words, not just one big fire, but divided tongues as of fire. It's like these things you might see coming out of a fire pit, a fire ring. Maybe, you know, in front of the old Taco Bells. I'm dating myself now. You had that fire ring and you'd see that kind of that shape or you're at the beach and you build a bonfire and you see that shape. Well, it's like it just divided whatever this visual representation was as of fire it wasn't fire no one's hair got singed no one's you know no one got blistered on their forehead but it was something that looked like that some manifestation of photons that looked like fire and it separated it divided and it appeared to them and rested on each one of them so we had a miracle of sound and a miracle of sight and here's the real miracle Kind of a miracle that all of us could say is reproduced today in that the Holy Spirit comes and invades these people's lives. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. More on that in a minute. Now in this case, that filling of the Holy Spirit as it's described in verse 4, it was manifested to everyone else that was coming into this town for this festival through something that they could objectively see was miraculous. They began to speak in other glossa, the Greek word glossa, we get the word glossary from that. This is the word that's translated here, tongues, which puts your mind into a lot of things that you've experienced in your life or seen or heard about in your modern life. And you think of something and I want to say, don't think of that. Let's just think of this right now. Right now, I want you to think about this. The word glossa means language. That's exactly what we're going to see. The Spirit gave them the ability to utter languages. As we'll see, that's clearly the only way to understand and interpret this text. They began to speak in other languages. No, they all spoke a language. Matter of fact, most of them there probably spoke Aramaic, and they probably knew something of ancient Hebrew, which is like Aramaic. And then they spoke Greek, right? That was the language of the marketplace, Koine Greek, common Greek. But they began to speak in other languages, Languages that they didn't speak before, as the Spirit here gave them utterance, gave them the ability to utter those languages. Now, why would you do that? Well, here's why. Verse 5. Now that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, which seems like the obvious statement of the morning. Okay. Well, what do you mean? No, no, no. Listen, you need to see there were devout men from every nation under heaven. Why? Because this was a pilgrimage feast. They were coming from everywhere. The Jewish people came from all these other countries and nations. 
And even the proselytes who weren't ethnic Jews, they came because they were submitted to the law of Moses. And at this sound, they heard this emanating from this upper room, this room that the 120 were in, this assembly room. And they came together. What is this we're hearing? It's like there's some kind of storm breaking out over here. We don't see any clouds. What is this? And they were bewildered. Why? Here's why. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, how was that? Doesn't make sense. They're not from our village. They're not from our nation. They're not from our town because we've come from all over the globe. They were amazed and astonished, saying, here's why they were amazed and astonished and bewildered. Those are the words used in verses 6 and 7. Bewildered, amazed, and astonished. Why? What's the miracle that they were hearing? Well, they're hearing their own language, but they were asking the question, the rhetorical obvious question, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Which is not to diminish the fact that they were from Galilee, but it's certainly not that it's an insult, but I mean, they're Galileans. They're from They're the country folk from up north. I mean, they came from around the Sea of Galilee, from Nazareth, from Cana, from Capernaum. I mean, these cities up there, they're not from these other countries. They're they're Jewish people. How is these Galileans talking in our language? Verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And just to make it clear what we were talking about, there's all kinds of people from all kinds of places. There's Parthians, verse 9, and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia. Think about that. The huge metropolitan area between the rivers of the Euphrates and the Tigris River. Babylon is over there. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. You can look these up on your map. Phrygia, verse 10. Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya beyond belonging to Cyrene. And visitors all the way from out west, from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans from the island of Crete and Arabians from the Arabian villages. And what did they say? We hear them telling in our own glossa, our own languages, our own tongues. And we still use it that way. They spoke the mother tongue, you know, someone might say in old English. They spoke our language. And we hear them telling in our own tongue, our own language, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed. How can this happen? This is a miracle. They were saying to one another, now we're seeing something here. What does it mean? Which is a great cue for a sermon, which happens in verse 14. He starts to preach. Peter starts to explain it all. But then there were some that were mocking, saying, these guys are drunk. Why would they say that? Well, if we had everyone from the world coming to UCI for some ethnic day or something, and we're all there, and we just normal folks, and all of a sudden now let's just take two countries from Canada, and maybe they know... English and French and maybe some from Mexico and they knew English and Spanish. And while I start ripping off some French talking about God to them, the Spanish people go, what is he doing? I understand his English, but I don't understand his French. Or the people from Mexico saying, well, I understand your English. I don't understand your French. Or the the Canadian saying, I understand your English, but I don't understand your Spanish. Some people were saying, they're drunk. I don't get it. It doesn't mean that everyone wasn't getting a person in that crowd to hear this message in their own language, whatever the message was, mighty works of God. 
So picture this not as a stage where someone is standing up and preaching. That's about to happen in verse 14. This is more like what happens in just a few minutes when we're out on the patio and the crowd is all around. Well, we would be dressed as Galileans if we were part of the 120, but there's a mass of people from all over the world out there coming to get ready for the Pentecost festival that was just underway. And we're out there dressed like Galileans. We look like Galileans. And we're interacting with people from all these different places, all these different skin types, all these different hair colors, all these different languages. And we're there speaking to them. And you're cornering one person as a Galilean and you're speaking to them in Coptic because they're from, from Egypt. You're there speaking in some kind of a, a Syrian dialect because they're from Mesopotamia. You're there speaking Latin, which you've never studied because they're out from Rome. And they're like, whoa, what is going on here? Well, what's going on here is God's launching his church. And he's launching his church, as the subtitle says, with a miracle. It is a miraculous launch of his church. Which, by the way, is the church that Jesus prophesied would continue on until he returned and would continue to grow and reach people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And here we are on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, and you are still a part of that organization that started with this miraculous bang. It's a big deal. An undeniable, miraculous start to the organization that you walked into this morning. You need to, number one, respect the power of the church. If you're taking notes, and I wish that you would, just revisit those first four verses and remember what this is all about. A symbol of fire that you visually see and a representation of something that sounds like wind that you phonically hear. And all of that has to do with, the beginning of verse four, these people having a new encounter with the Holy Spirit If you want to talk mysterious things, just start talking about the Holy Spirit. What in the world is that? Well, when Jesus said, I'm going to go back to my father, I've had an earthly ministry here. I'm leaving you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It says in John chapter 14 through 16 in the upper room discourse before he goes to Gethsemane and then onto the cross. He says, I'm going to give you my spirit and the spirit has been with you, but then there's going to be a change and he's going to be in you. You will be filled with him. You will be, to use the verbiage of chapter 24 in Luke, you will be clothed with with him. Clothed with, and here's the equality of that, with power from on high. You will be baptized. That's another word that's used in the spirit. There will be this new connection that you have with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't think too simplistically about this. And we talked about this in the first series in chapter one. It's not as though the Holy Spirit was on vacation in the Old Testament. He was active. He was involved. Matter of fact, words like filled were used for some people in the Old Testament. The Spirit coming upon people. Frequent, frequent discussion in the Old Testament of prophets and kings. And even artisans that worked in the tabernacle to make the beautiful furniture for the tabernacle. They were, they were said to be in scripture to be filled with God's Spirit. So it's not that the Spirit wasn't active in the Old Testament. It's not that He wasn't really active. It's not that He didn't convict people of sin. It's not that he didn't prompt people and encourage people and bring them support. All of that is true. But something was going to change that was based on the prophetic promise that we're going to look at next time we're together. The prophetic promise of the change between the Spirit being with his people to being in each and every individual person. And that's a powerful thing, the Bible says. Power to do what? To do things you couldn't otherwise do. Magic tricks like speak languages I didn't learn. That isn't the point. But it is an objective, verifiable attestation of God launching his church. 
What's the real thing that they couldn't do? Well, a bunch of Galileans going changing the ancient world with Herod and the Herodians and the Caesar's household and all the powers of Rome and all the taxation and of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the rest to go out there as a bunch of fishermen and former tax collectors and to see the world changed for Christ, to have them actually have their sins forgiven and their life made right with God. You're going to be the agency of that? As Christ himself said to Saul of Tarsus when he got kicked off his horse on the road to Damascus, I'm going to use you to take people out of this domain of darkness. You're going to lead them into the kingdom. I'm going to use you to save these people. That's a huge and lofty calling to be an emissary and an agent of God's spirit in this world to change them. That's something you and I can't do. So the spirit of God is going to empower the church to do what it couldn't do. This thing, this organization that begins because of the spirit would be like a mustard seed that grows into this giant organization with people from every place flying into its branches and settling into it. And here we are, a bunch of light-skinned people on the other side of the planet on a piece of real estate that they didn't even know about in the first century living in a completely different time zone from Jerusalem 2,000 years later, claiming that we have Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, the, the Messiah of the Old Testament, as our Savior, we're singing songs to him and we're saying because he rose from the dead, we are forgiven and we're going to a place of God's blessing, not a place of God's punishment. It's amazing. And the power of the Spirit to make that happen For Jesus to say, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, as you go and make disciples of all the nations, that's the power of the church. And that's why you're still here today. That's why we're going into neighborhoods. I mean, next weekend, we'll be doing that again, to share the message of the gospel. And we're seeing hearts change. We're seeing lives change. Because we're part of the church, and the church is settled and and immersed and clothed in the third person of the Godhead. As mysterious as that sounds, I have a relationship and you have a relationship if you're a Christian with the Spirit of God that is different and unique and the permanence of which to settle in your life, to have you do things with a message and to be bold about that message that we couldn't otherwise do. You need to respect the power of the church. This was the promise of Ezekiel 36, that in verse 27, the Spirit of God would be put within people. He would place his spirit in people and then he would cause them and move them to keep his statutes and obey his rules. And the number one rule of the church is to get out there and share that gospel with people, to be his witnesses. Wind. I've got a compressor in my garage and my neighbor probably doesn't like as loud as it is, but I turn it on often because I no longer clean anything up or vacuum anything. I just blow it all around with my air compressor. And it's really not my fault because everyone in the world taught me that that's what you do with the leaves in your driveway. You just take out your leaf blower and blow them into your neighbor's yard. But it works, and I love it. It's such a powerful thing. Turn on that leaf blower and psh, clean my driveway. It looks great when I'm done. My workbench in the garage is all dusty and dirty. Just take my, turn my air compressor on. Blow that thing off. And everything looks great. Blow it into the driveway. Get my leaf blower. Blow it down the driveway. Blow it into the street picture of wind, which by the way, if you don't know the picture of wind, we talk about an air compressor and you need pneumatic tools for that. Pneuma, that's the word. That's the word. Pneuma means spirit and it's also translated wind. And the picture of the spirit of God, it's like Jesus says to Nicodemus, it blows where it wants and it comes. You don't see where it's coming from. You see the effects of it. And even in my life, I recognize the cleansing power of it. 
blowing away the debris. That's a picture. Much like the water is a picture of cleansing. And certainly that's one of the major themes in the Old Testament of how God's Spirit is going to cleanse us and wash us. But in this case, there's something even stronger than water. Water's not used here. Fire is used. An image of fire. There's something that looks through my eyeballs. The photonic picture that I'm seeing in that upper room is something that reminds me of fire. And even as I said when Peter, and I gave you the shorthand paraphrase, Peter talks about the fact that we were purchased. And I said this, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Well, really it says silver and gold, even though it's refined by fire. Peter loves to use that. The idea is fire is the thing. You probably don't have a smelter. It's not a very good analogy for the modern era. You might have an air compressor, but you, you, you're not used to probably purifying metals with, with fire. But that, I mean, that was pretty common. You'd see that on the corner. Even in the old West, you'd see a lot of that at the blacksmith shop. And you recognize this. There was something about this that was saying this is a clean place. These are people that have been cleansed. These are people that are made new and they're completely forgiven and what God has done is taken up residence in their life and he's going to use them to change the world. Got to respect the power of the church. It changed history. People are still dating their checks on the coming of Christ and Christ came to build his church, created a new man as it's called, called the bride of Christ, the building of God. A reference I'd love to get to if I had time. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 to talk about what this new thing was, this mystery that was revealed, the church. We should stand back and realize what a huge thing it is that Christ established the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, Christ, the building of Christ. When you're tempted to ignore it, when you're tempted to criticize it, I mean, I think you'd be very careful not to criticize the girlfriend of some guy that you respected, you'd say, wow, that would be rude of me. Be careful what you do in terms of your opinion and your critique and even your dismissal of the church. It is the bride of Christ. Verses 4 through 8, the second half of 4, the miracle that they could look to in that time to see that this was a God thing and not a human thing. They didn't sit around and say, well, let's drop some papers and start an organization Let's start a 501c3. We'll start a church here. And, you know, Peter, why don't you sign? Why don't you be the president? That's not how this worked. This was a God thing, and they knew it was a God thing. And so here's how God told everyone, gathered for this feast. Historians say probably a million people gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. So they all knew, and everyone was talking about this is a God thing. There was a miracle. They spoke in other languages. The Spirit enabled them to speak in other languages, other tongues. Now, dwelling in Jerusalem, we get Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the sound of the multitude, they came together. They were bewildered. Why? Because each of them was hearing them speak, those Galileans, in his own language. They were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So here was the miracle. The miracle was these languages. That miracle that could be attested to as a sign that everyone could say, you don't know French, you don't know Coptic, you don't know Spanish, to use my illustration. You don't know these languages, and yet you speak these languages. Everyone could see objectively. That is a miraculous thing. There's God's fingerprints all over it. The imprimatur of God was on it. Number two, you need to affirm the divine origin of the church. You're not in a man-made organization. You're in a God organization. The Spirit of God has given evidence by the growth and power of the church 2,000 years later. We're still here. God is still accomplishing his purpose through us. But not only that, it started with a miraculous bang, and that miracle was people speaking languages that they did not know. There's a lot that passes 
for quote-unquote the gift of tongues these days. As a matter of fact, when I use the word Pentecost, I don't know if you've made this connection, but it's pretty obvious if you think about it for two minutes. We have a whole group of people in the modern church that call themselves Pentecostals. Pentecostal. They're Pentecostals because they're saying, listen, when the Christians got together here in Pentecost for the first time filled with the Spirit... They spoke in these other languages, and so we're Pentecostals. We're going to see that stuff from Acts 2 happen in our lives. And you say, well, I thought they were charismatics. Well, there's a group of people called the charismatics. Charismatics is a description of a lot of different groups. Charisma in Greek is the Greek word for gift. And just like the Pentecostals who say, well, we do this stuff here that you see in Acts chapter 2, the charismatics say we have that gift along with all the other miraculous gifts And they accuse people that aren't in their circle as not believing in the spiritual gifts. Well, of course, every Christian believes in the spiritual gifts. The question is, are these replicatable, miraculous gifts that the church is exercising today? And the church had said for 1,900 years, no. I mean, the church had said, I mean, from the earliest days, from the second century on, these were things that were done in the first century to authenticate the message of Christ and to establish the church to make sure that we knew that the scripture and the organization was a divine thing. And not until 1901 did we begin to see the origins, some of it back in the Midwest, some of it here in L.A., a new launching of an organization, loosely at first, philosophically, theologically, grow into what now is so commonplace among us. We say there are Pentecostals and there are Charismatics, and one of the things they do is they speak in tongues. Well, at least that's what they claimed initially at the outset of their founding. And they said, well... We're doing that stuff. Well, then they went out on the mission field trying to use that thing that they thought was tongues and realized, well, this isn't working because it wasn't this. So then they worked hard to redefine what it is. Now, I'm not in this message today to deal with all that you might say, well, isn't that what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14? But on the back of your worksheet, for the sake of time, you can get five hours of information walking verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 14 to try and figure out what was going on in Corinth That some people say, well, it wasn't what was going on here in Acts 2. Because Acts 2 is super clear. It's the gift of languages that I did not learn speaking to people that understand what I'm saying. Because in a language they learned and knew as kids and knew in their lives, now they're hearing you speak. And that's a miracle. And and they're saying, well, there's another thing. You want to learn about that? I call that series Untwisting the Tongues issue. That's all on the back there. You can go a little deeper in that. But today, I don't think there's any confusion here about this passage. The whole bewilderment. The whole amazement and astonishment was that you had people that should not know my language and they know my language and they're preaching in my language. That was a divine affirmation of God working. I think in that series, you might be helpful to go through it if you're still confused that maybe there's some kind of quote-unquote angel talk or groaning too deep for words or some kind of unintelligible language that comes out of my mouth and I'm calling it tongues. Well, certainly don't call it tongues here. And I'm also going to say in my series, don't call it tongues from 1 Corinthians 14. But suffice it for your own homework and plenty of books on the back to work that through. All these languages were from all these people. And I just wanted to make a note from verses 8 through 11 that all of these nations that were listed were listed, I mean, almost ad nauseum here. Like, wow, do we really need a a whole accounting of all these nations? Well, what's the point? He piles nation upon nation and place upon place. Not just to show, yeah, there were a lot of multilingual people there that heard this miracle and they could affirm this miracle. It's that those nations had come together to hear clearly from these 120 Galileans, most of them Galileans at least, 
what God was wanting them to hear. Those nations came to them. And much like the Tower of Babel where the language was confused and they scattered the people, here was God bringing them together in this festival and then God giving the ability of these 120 people to speak in their language. And here was the sense of the gospel seeking to unify all these people so that from every tongue, tribe, and nation, they would all come together, as Daniel 7 says, under the submission of the Son of Man to whom all dominion and authority had been given. This is a reversal in some ways, at least poetically, of that Tower of Babel scene. And it reminds us that God's goal is to see the church do exactly what he said we should do from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We ought to, as it's put in Matthew 28, go and reach all nations, make disciples of all the nations. I just want to say this. You need to think about God doing this here on this day to tee up and to get these people excited about going back to places like Mesopotamia, Parthia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, And certainly the book of Acts is showing us the expansion of the gospel through all those places. And you ought to be excited about that. As a matter of fact, you ought to view it this way. And I put it this way, thinking in your mind that it ought to be adjusted to not just we have a task that we're working on, but a task that has a completion, a task that is going to be filled. The Bible likes to talk about it in those terms. Let's have you write it down that way. Here's how I put it. Number three, you need to seek the completion of the church. God started the church in Acts 2. Maybe we'll be the generation to complete it. To complete it, yeah, because here's how it's described in Romans 11. This current period is called the times of the Gentiles. And we're waiting for the times of the Gentiles to be fulfilled. Matter of fact, scroll down to Acts chapter 3. And I quoted this, I think, in the first series, but this is a very helpful way to view your passion for missions and evangelism here on the other side of the world. Look at Acts 3, drop down to verse 18 when Peter says this. Acts 3.18, but God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. He thus fulfilled. So that was done. Therefore, now we're working on fulfilling his commission to go reach people for Christ. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out and that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, read that again. Repent, guys. Turn back. Here's the benefit for you. Your sins will be blotted out. But here's the purpose clause. That, I mean, that's a benefit to you, but here's the real concern, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send the Christ that is appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, here's a key word, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Well, here's the thing. There's some things that the prophets spoke long ago that were fulfilled, verse 18. Then there were some things that have yet to be fulfilled. And between the fulfillment of all of those promises and the fulfillment of the first installment and set of promises is this period of time we call the church when we are called to complete the church. The times of the Gentiles, where all the nations that we're seeking to go win for Christ, including this nation and this culture, that we want to see this filled up so that God can send Christ back. When the job is done, he'll send it back. I quote it all the time. Second Peter chapter 3. We're supposed to recognize that the delay, the period between the first coming and the second coming, the first set of prophetic promises being fulfilled and the second that have yet to be fulfilled is that he wants more people to come to repentance. He wants all to come to repentance. And if you want to be very specific about that, it's the all that he has called from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Think that through with me. It's like you sitting at a, an assembly in elementary school. 
And you know what it's like to try and herd the cats of elementary school students into an auditorium and they're there and they won't sit down and they're goofing around and they're throwing paper airplanes and the principal gets up and you've got a curtain behind the principal and there's going to be the most amazing play and you've been waiting for it all year and you can't wait anymore and the principal stands up at the microphone and says to you guys, listen, when everyone gets in their seat, we'll start. Now, if you're sitting there in your seat with bated breath to see this thing start, guess what? You're going to want everyone to sit down. You're going to say, Tommy, sit down. Why? Because I want this show to start. That's really how you ought to view evangelism. Is it good for him to sit down? Yeah, because when his rear end hits the chair, his sins are forgiven. You get in your place in the church. You put another person, another member in the church of God. His sins are blotted out and his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is a great thing and it's good for him. But the bigger picture is, hey, we got another one in his seat. We can't wait for God now to pull the curtain back and to start this show. We, got, we, we can't wait. We want you to get saved. We want you to repent, turn back, sit in your seat. You'll be forgiven. Your sins will be blotted out. And then Christ's going to start this thing, the times of refreshing. Do you view evangelism that way? You should. The church is going to be filled. Every seat in the bus, as I like to say, is going to be filled. Every seat, when it is filled, then God's going to say, Christ, go. Go get your church, the bride of Christ. Our call to see our neighbors and friends and coworkers saved is altruistic, I suppose, in them benefiting from Christ, but it's also selfish in some ways with a kind of godly selfishness. We really want Christ to come back. We're crying out, Maranatha. We're praying every day, your kingdom come. And we know the kingdom's not going to come till every Tommy is in his seat. Seek the completion of the church because there's people from Parthia, Medes, the Elamites, the, Elamites, the, the, the Mesopotamianites, the, 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 the Judeans, the, the people from Pontus and Asia and, and Phrygia and Pamphylia. All, there's people in, from every tongue, tribe, and nation that need to be in the seat of the church. That's why we do missions. That's why we go door to door in our community. Let us be the generation that completes the church. Lastly, bottom of verse 11 through 13 Some of them said, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. It is interesting to me as I read through the commentaries that, you know, our professors and scholars have written on this passage. Not many people spend too much time or spill much ink on trying to tell us what they think the mighty works of God are. Don't you want to know that? I'd like to know what that is. What do you, what did you tell them? What are these Galilean women who were in one corner talking to someone maybe in Latin that they'd never learned? What were they saying? Thursday night we talked about Jesus having that man, that paralytic brought down through the roof. And he looks at him and he says, he sees his faith. He says, your sins are forgiven. And people were grumbling at that. And Jesus knew that. And he says, why are you grumbling? Listen. He said, which is harder for me to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to take up your mountain walk? Which is harder for me? To heal this paralytic or to say his sins are forgiven? Now, you've got to think that through because the answer is a rhetorical, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is inferred. And we should know, if we know anything about the Bible, the hardest thing would be to blot someone's sins out. How can you have the right to forgive sins that are committed against God? I mean, to heal someone's paralyzed legs? Well, that's pretty hard. But what's harder is to take a dead person who's dead to God and make him alive to God. That's really hard. And he says, so that you can see that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to him and he says, rise up and walk. After all of that, forgiveness of sins being the main thing, 
miracle of healing this paralytic, the people left, and I quoted it on Thursday night, they said, we've seen some amazing things here today. A lot of the miracles of Christ, a lot of the teachings of Christ, they went away astonished at God. They went away glorifying God. This just is not quoting of the Psalms. I don't think that's what's going on here. They're talking about Christ. They're talking about what Christ did. They're talking about Christ coming to forgive the sins of people. They're talking about him giving his life as a ransom for many. And they were all amazed and perplexed, verse 12, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were trying to interpret all of this. I'm sure a lot of Christological truth about Christ. Others, like you're going to have whenever you teach the truth, they're mocking. They're finding a way to dismiss it. May not even like the message. I don't think I want to follow this Christ. I don't think that's the real Messiah. They'd heard in their own language, but they're listening to people speaking in other languages. They go, ah, they're just filled with new wine. They're drunk. Have you noticed about the Church of Christ that it's all about teaching? You can join a bowling club, and you're going to, I don't know, what do they call Bowling league. You can be on a bowling team, and you're going to go and knock bowling pins down. You can join the you can you can join the, a surf club and you go out and surfing. We'll join a, a mountain biking group and go out and mountain bike. You want to join this club? It's a really weird thing because most of the time you're going to get taught at all the time. Some guy standing up with a lectern like you're back in school, and it's all going to be all about teaching. It's the main thing. It's the thing that lasts the longest. Matter of fact, all throughout our campus this morning, there are people teaching people everywhere, teaching, 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 teaching. Church starts with people teaching declaring the mighty works of God. Some were embracing it, some were rejecting it, some were scratching their head over it. Church is all about that because when Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, here is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, speaking of himself, who you've sent. Peter said, you should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, you ought to pray to know and have an understanding, teaching With all the saints, what's the breadth, the height, the length, and the depth of the love of God? You know what you need? Teaching, teaching, teaching. God gifts his church with teachers. It starts with teaching. Everyone teaching their neighbor here, so to speak. The outsider saying, here, you need to hear this. One of the great things about this club that you're part of, this society, this organization, this organism called the church is that it's all about teaching. You ought to devour it. You ought to seek to understand it. Number four, understand the teaching of the church. This is teaching about Christ. This is understanding Christ as he's presented to us in prophecy in the Old Testament. It's one of the first things Peter's going to stand up and say in verse 14 and 15, let me tell you what this means. Take advantage of the church. There's a lot of teaching that goes on here. I got up here last week or the week before, whatever it was, talking about our podcast, talking about the things that go on in our sub-congregations. You ought to be as involved in this church as you can be and to soak in as much teaching. Have your laptops open. Have your iPads out. To be sitting there taking notes in your notebook. Isaiah 11, 9. When God looks to the end of the ideal He says, you know, the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. How are you going to get that? You're going to get it when people start talking in a language you can understand about the great things that God has done. The focus now is on the church. As Jeremiah 3.15 says, God uses a Hebrew word that the equivalent in the New Testament is the word poimen, which is the word shepherd. Translated that way in 
Jeremiah 3.15, it says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart and they will feed you with knowledge and understanding. I have no apologies for the church being about teaching. The programs all having teaching in them. The miraculous launch of the church reminds us that there is something that we need to know, something we need to hear, something that should get our attention. There's a great line as... Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you know how to behave in the household of God. You go to Club 33 or you go to the core club in Manhattan or you want to walk into Trump National or Liberty Country Club, you better be wearing the rights. You better mind your P's and Q's. You better know how to function in that setting. Paul says to Timothy, I've made you not only a student, but a teacher of the things of Scripture. And I'm writing these things so you know how to behave in the household of God. The church of the living God. Pillar and foundation of the truth. And he gives one of the early hymns of the church. Indeed, this mystery is great. The mystery of godliness. And we confess it. That Christ was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. And proclaimed among the nations. That's our job. And it all starts with understanding what a privilege it is to be a part of this great thing that Christ started 2,000 years ago, the church of Jesus Christ. Let's respect it more this week, sense the privilege of it, and talk about it more than ever. Let's pray. God, what a good thing it is that if we're Christians here today that we are members of the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the living God, the church or assembly of the firstborn, as it says in the book of Hebrews. What a good thing it is to be a part of the church. Help us to elevate that in our minds over the next five weeks as we think about what it means that you've called us into this assembly of people that are filled with the Spirit that started with a miraculous, undeniable miracle of people speaking in languages they hadn't learned. God, make us much more appreciative of the church. Let us see our value that we have in Christ because you've made us a part of this church. Let us support it. Let us sacrifice for it. Let us pray for it. Let us see the truth of it proclaimed to the nations. Make that a much more frequent, much more ardent, zealous part of our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.